Well, look who's here. I thought you weren't coming. Don't leave me here! Don't leave me here! Don't leave me here! Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's uh, been almost a month since my latest episode. Not good. Well, um, I think it's it's good, but there could be more. That's the only fault I would have, that it isn't often enough. Um, uh, thanks, uh, fatter? Hey there. Welcome back to the Hansel and Gretel Code. This here is episode 34. And, yep, I'm over that fucking COVID crap. It really, really fucking sucks. Nonsense. <coughs> In our last episode, we found the Holzhacker family out on the trail, leading into the Great Forest, with Hansel stopping along the way to look back at their little house and home. But considering the circumstance... That isn't just Hansel being sneaky. It makes for a good indication of uh, homesickness, don't you think? Certainly. And not just literally, with the little brother hoping to eventually make it back home with his sister. I'm talking big picture. I'm talking metaphor. This looking back business, well, it symbolizes a specific sort of homesickness. A kind of longing that is, in fact, an underlying theme of the entire fairy tale. See, just as many medieval Christians longed to return to that old-time religion, and so they embraced the poverty and lifestyle of the apostles, Hansel's looking back, that represents the longing of the entire Germanic people to return to their intuitive, pre-syncretic roots to the pre-Christian ways of their ancestors. And that's something we're going to prove with the next couple of lines of the fairy tale. So, buckle your seatbelts. Because in order to get there, we're going to take a quick trip to Switzerland, followed by an intense little journey to India. And then once we get back... We're going to go visit an animal shelter to see if we can find a nice little kitty cat. Welcome to the Cats Motel. I'm Cats. Will you please sign in? Part 1 Teil 1 in which we see how the head is often clueless concerning what the heart knows and what the heart wants. And what it wants is... Swiss cheese? Okay. Just to remind you where we came from, here's that last line from episode 33. 
wie sie nun so ging, da stand das Brüderchen oft still und guckte nach ihrem Häuschen zurück. Now, as they went along, the little brother often stopped and looked back towards their little house. And now the next line of the fairy tale. Der Vater sagte, was bleibst du immer stehen und guckst zurück? The father said, what do you keep dawdling and looking back at? I've already answered that question for Hansel. And yeah, you and I already know the story, so we know why he's dawdling. It's a ruse. But what if looking back is meant as a figure of speech? That would mean thinking about the past, right? Indeed. As confident as he is, Hansel knows he may never see home again. So looking back would mean he's already homesick. Now we all know what homesickness is. But there's way more to the idea of homesickness than I would have thought. In fact, taking the time to look up stuff like this, stuff uh, about which we're sure we already know everything we need to know, well, that looking up can lead to some real surprises. And sure, learning you've been clueless about something basic, ew, that can be embarrassing. More often, though, an unexpected revelation can be a serious pleasure. And goading us into that sort of pleasure, it's one of the aims of our fairy tale author. So in the realm of homesickness, our first surprise is nostalgia. Nostalgia, or die Nostalgie. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Now, nostalgia, as you and I know it, It isn't much more than a sentimental tug at the heartstrings. It's a common enough feeling, and it's reliably evoked by going through old family photos. Or maybe by coming across that Dennis the Menace drinking cup you had as a kid. Okay, Boomer. Okay, some kitschy old something you recognize from your childhood. Minor factoid. Nostalgia, or nostalgie, was a term coined in 1688 by Johannes Hoffer. Too much information, factoid? Nostalgie was a phenomenon he had carefully observed and written about in his medical school dissertation. Because, yes, a uh, surprising factoid, it was considered a common but serious medical condition consistent with a near-suicidal depression that sometimes led to unexplained fevers and even death. Yikes! It was seen in plenty of displaced European workers, but uh, most famously, in Swiss mercenaries. You know, those uh, crossbow-carrying William Tell kind of guys? And probably even in those fancy-dressed Swiss guards at the Vatican. Okay, a fun factoid. According to Jacques Cousteau, or I mean Jean-Jacques Rousseau, all it took to make those guys want to go AWOL, or even turn catatonic, was hearing a few bars of their traditional Alpine songs, or just the sound of Alpine cowbells. Guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription... 
It's more cowbell. <clears throat> now, if you're interested, there's a book called The Future of Nostalgia by Svetlana Boim. It's from 2001, and in it, she offers a brilliant deep dive into the subject. I'll leave a link. Thanks. Well, no matter how deep we go into homesickness and nostalgia, there's still familiar and uh, limited terms that don't give us any deep insights into Hansel's behavior. There is, however, another much more subtle and nuanced term that's worth considering. Chocolate. Uh, n- no. Sehnsucht. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, it's a German word. It's also the title of a poem by Schiller. But if we're going to understand how it fits into the fairy tale, we need a good explanation of it in English. And to that end, the uh, Wikipedia article on Sehnsucht? It's sort of a muddle, and it seems to be written by people who've never experienced the real McCoy. And forget Schiller, because he's a philosopher who thinks he's a poet. Oh! Well, whether or not he understood Zainzucht, his poem, or at least the translation, it's off the mark. Now, there's even a poem by Goethe in which a guy is miserably cut off from his girlfriend. It makes Seinzucht sound more like teen angst and the suicidal depression of nostalgie, which it definitely is not. Hey, there's no despair or desperation in Seinzucht. So if all we had were references like this, we'd think Seinzucht was just some $20 or 20 euro word for run-of-the-mill homesickness. But Hansel's looking back is very important to understand, and Sehnsucht, it's the key to that understanding. Now at its deepest level, Hansel's looking back is symbolic of our soul's longing for henosis, something we've understood pretty much uh, from the get-go, from practically the first episode of this podcast. Henosis is the soul's return to and union with the source a mystical-sounding equivalent to heaven, except it's something that's available to us in this lifetime, and not just in some Christian afterlife. And while henosis is a fancy Greek word for an experience that Christianity claims to be presumptuous Gnostic heresy, calling Hansel's longing Zainzucht, that brings henosis out of the clouds of religious abstraction and defies any and all dogmatic insistence on its impossibility. So, uh, unless you're worried about the Inquisition, (laughs) understanding Zainzucht, it's worth our time and trouble. Now, despite its Wikipedia reputation as a synonym for the kind of schmaltzy, romantic longing we're all familiar with, and uh, would prefer to keep reliably confined to Hollywood tearjerkers and romance paperbacks, Zainzucht carries the full weight of henosis, which itself is just an expensive word for an experience we're all entitled to. Zainzucht isn't homesickness. It isn't nostalgia. 
And it certainly isn't a wistful longing for some impossible-to-reach someone or something, either from the past or the future. Zainzukt is longing, yeah, yeah, but a very specific type of longing that's almost impossible to put into words. Now, oddly enough, it was the popular culture section of the Wikipedia article that led me to C.S. Lewis, and he's the guy who put me on the right track. In his sermon from 1941, Lewis said, Zainzucht is our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off. And while that line alone it doesn't distinguish it from nostalgia or even homesickness, his elaborations make it clear that Zainzucht is consistent with a longing for henosis which we already know is Hansel's aim for himself and his sister, to return to the One, the house of the Father. Now, the crucial elaboration came in 1955, 14 years after that sermon. Lewis published an autobiographical text he called Surprised by Joy. And in it, he describes Zainzuk as an intense longing for a transcendent something that itself is impossible to define. And then he gives Zainzucht an English name. Pizza. Uh, no. <clears throat> he doesn't call it longing. He calls it joy. He makes it clear that this joy, this feeling, this Zainzucht, is an unsatisfied longing that, paradoxically, is an immensely satisfying pleasure to have. Saying joy is an unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. And then he says, anyone who has experienced it will want it again. So if the descriptions I've shared with you here are confusing or they just don't resonate. That's on me, because I'm willing to bet that you have indeed experienced Zainzucht. Because it's the experience itself that's important, not how anyone has tried and failed to describe or define it. See, reading C.S. Lewis was an aha moment for me, because his description came close to fitting an experience I'm familiar with. So the way I would describe Zainzucht begins with the experience of feeling, or rather being, moved. And we all know what that feels like. But I'm not talking about the sort of politely educated sensation of feeling grateful for some unbidden favor or selfless gesture by a friend or a stranger, as in, I was deeply moved by your kindness. It's a feeling that's half physical and half emotional. It's a feeling of being transported. And as such, is probably a memory from infancy. As if being carried in someone's arms and, well, being loved. So just as C.S. Lewis said, we crave the feeling. 
but we often seek it in places that offer only a pale imitation. Like the tearjerker. And maybe we cry in tearjerkers, just like we did in infancy, as a reasonably surefire way to invite the feeling. That feeling of being comforted and cared for. Zainzuk is a taste of that feeling of being loved and lovable without needing anyone to supply it for us. Zainzuk is a feeling of being within love. Personally, I could say Zainzuk is something that comes to me only occasionally. And when it does come, it's always so intense and so hopeful, I never want it to end. But it always does, and very quickly. And the intense but fleeting pleasure is how I recognized my own experience in what C.S. Lewis had written. But there's still something else to Zainzucht, a dimension that C.S. Lewis didn't mention. It's a feeling of being so moved, it feels as if your heart is breaking. Not breaking bad, though. Breaking open. And that's crucial. So then, knowing from experience that the feeling is centered around the heart, that allowed me to recognize Zainsukt in something that Jung had written and had spoken about many times, all in relation to his explanation of the Atman or the Purusha. You see, in his explanation of the fourth chakra, he speaks of it as an experience of the Atman or the Purusha. And being that the fourth chakra is centered in the heart, I could take his word that the intense feeling of having my heart break open, well, that had everything to do with whatever an Atman or Purusha is supposed to be. So, up until learning about Zainsukt from C.S. Lewis, I just called my own experience of feeling intensely moved a fourth chakra experience. And please, as in all of the business surrounding chakras, we're talking about recognizable experiences, not woo-woo, new age abstractions. So in Man and His Symbols, Jung writes, According to Hindu tradition, the cosmic man is something that lives within the individual human being and is the only part that is immortal. This inner great man redeems the individual by leading him out of creation and its sufferings back into his original eternal sphere. Which is, of course, another way of saying henosis. And then Jung says, but he can do this only if man recognizes him. So what Jung is saying is based on the fact that this cosmic person, inner great person, was known in the Upanishads as both the Atman and the Purusha. Although in this article of Man and His Symbols, he only mentions the Purusha. And he specifically says, In the symbolic myths of India, this figure is known as the Purusha. Well, the obvious question is, 
How the fuck are we supposed to recognize this character? Well, after years of reading Jung, I can tell you for sure that what he means is we have to be able to recognize an experience we've already had and something we're familiar with and then be open to connecting that experience to an explanation we've never heard before. But an explanation that resonates with us as truth. So when Jung said, the Purusha lives within the heart of every individual, and yet at the same time, he fills the entire cosmos. See, I was able to connect that feeling of having my heart break open with the Purusha and understand it as an experience of the fourth chakra. So now, combining the description of C.S. Lewis and Carl Jung with my own experience, I can understand Jung's description of the Purusha as henosis, and the longing for it as Sehnsucht, which to me means recognizing Sehnsucht as a fourth chakra experience. And yeah, I know, that's an awful lot of words. And words alone can't give you the experience. But again, I'm willing to bet you've had that experience of feeling intensely moved sometime in your life. And maybe this combination of Jung and C.S. Lewis and Hansel and Gretel can give you a way to recognize that experience as something much more profound and cosmic than you may have ever realized. Now finally, there's something else in C.S. Lewis that relates to Hansel's looking back, but only uh, in the funniest of reversals. In the preface to Lewis's Surprised by Joy, he says, This book is written in answer to requests that I would tell how I passed from atheism to Christianity. And... The book aims at telling the story of my conversion. See, conversion just happens to be the theme of this very step, albeit, ironically, in reverse. That is, from Christianity back to the pre-Christian Germanic culture. Back to their more primal, intuitive connection to what they've always known as sacred and holy. Now with that, I'll leave C.S. Lewis in peace with his religious preferences, because I suspect his typology required a religious conversion to Christianity for him to find, recognize, and contain his own intuition. Now as far as the Grimm's revisions go, there's plenty to say, and it's all delightfully meaningful, especially since Wilhelm takes us by the hand to make sure we don't miss the symbolism within the figure of speech of looking back. Then again, I made a promise to move things along. And so, having chewed your ear off about Zainsucht, let's just leave uh, Wilhelm's info for the book this podcast uh, was supposed to be, and hopefully will be. Good idea! Part 2 in which Hansel tells a little white lie. We go scouring the internet in search of the truth 
and all we can find is some long-winded papal bullsh- uh, hmm, I mean, declaration. I gotta have more cowbell. So, uh, moving right along, here's what happens next. Ach, antwortete das Brüderchen, ich sehe nach meinem weißen Kätzchen, das sitzt auf dem Dach und will mir Ade sagen. Heimlich ließ es aber immer einen von den weißen Kieselsteinchen fallen. Oh, answered the little brother. I'm looking at my little white cat who's sitting on the roof and wants to say goodbye to me. Secretly, however, he would always let one of the little white pebbles fall. Now, whatever is sitting on a roof, assuming it's not a flat roof, of course, it's pretty much visible for all the world to see. And so, what could a little white cat represent? A sign of virtue? Hmm, like a white Masonic apron on the hoof, uh, so to speak? An odd allusion to the Holy Ghost? Hey, a white pigeon appears later on in the story, so uh, why not? Now we already know that white is the color of the moon and the color of Hansel's silvery pebbles. So there must be some connection there. Except uh, all of this is just grasping at straws. The one thing we know for sure, Hansel is offering up a little white lie. And as a fairy tale lesson for children, which this story isn't meant to be, it's still pretty shrewd. Little fibs like this, they often prove to be advantageous, since they're exactly what logic expects, and maybe even prefers to hear, especially in a case like this. And what I mean is, when dealing with a narcissist in power, whether it's a narcissist parent or a narcissist boss, pretending to go along with the program, it's extremely practical and very intelligent. Now for Hansel, telling the truth, that would mean tipping his hand and admitting that he and his sister know they're being taken for a ride. And an admission like that, that could only end badly. So Hansel lies to his parents, just as they've lied to him. Still, of all the possible excuses for looking back, why did he choose a cat? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, neither did I. And ten years ago, looking as deeply as I possibly could into the symbolism of cats... I found plenty of websites claiming all sorts of fanciful connections between cats and witchcraft and heresy. But almost nothing I found was backed up by referencing bona fide sources. For example, one of the first things I came across was the intriguing idea of philidomancy or alluromancy meaning a form of divination based on observing the movements of cats. And knowing that all forms of divination amount to an intuitive practice, 
Any connection between Hansel's cat watching and this form of divination? Ooh, it sounds enticing. But it leads us nowhere. The fact is, divination by observing the movements of animals, it's known as theriomancy. So why mention a cat specifically, and not some other animal, like a bird, for instance? I don't know. Now, being that there are plenty of cat lovers in this world, cat lore is super easy to come by. But it's mostly just copied and pasted all over the internet without any reference to original sources. Somewhere along the line, though, I finally found a website claiming in the early 13th century, Pope Gregory IX declared that a sect in southern France had been caught worshipping the devil. He claimed that the devil appeared in the form of a black cat. Now, I do like me some papal bull, especially since there's a good chance of tracking down the original Latin. Hell, there's even a sporting chance of finding a good, accurate translation outside of Google Translate. Turns out, Gregory's declaration wasn't an official bull, and it didn't mention southern France. It was an angry letter copied to four different bigwigs in Germany, complaining about devil worship there. And it authorized a crusade to stamp it out. In fact, it promised an abundant outpouring of grace to everyone who joined in and lent their sword to the enterprise. Now, the letter is known to history as Vox in Rama. Having found the Latin original online and a decent English translation, I can tell you it barely mentions cats at all. But it does indeed mention a black cat. So connecting Gregory's black cat to this line of the fairy tale, it's an awful stretch. Even so, the main letter is hilarious as unintentionally gratuitous comedy material. Because the Pope goes on and on, histrionically complaining about the pain this devil worship is causing him. Pain that he describes literally as if he were a woman in labor. Ventrum meum dolio, ventrum meum dolio. My belly hurts, my belly hurts. He pushes the obstetric similes so far, I gotta tell you, as an obstetrician, I found that part both hilarious and ridiculous. So, once the Pope gets out of labor and delivery, he starts to dish some titillating X-rated gossip. He describes the orgiastic sex and bestiality, ad fedetissimum opus luxuriae, attending the clandestine rites of certain German converts. Now, accurate or not, considering the fact that his descriptions are based on the reports of a German inquisitor, these converts must have found themselves dissatisfied and disappointed with the anemic, syncretic concessions offered by the Vatican missionaries. As entertaining as all this was, I was getting pretty frustrated, both by the abundance of titillating internet innuendo 
and the lack of anything substantive. I figured I was missing something fairly obvious, since Wilhelm Grimm chose not to change this line in any way. And that meant, as I said in the last episode, that he didn't find the clues to the symbolism too subtle to require any extra hints. So, what do you know? I finally did figure out exactly why Hansel gave his father all that malarkey about a white cat. Turns out, he wasn't lying. Welcome to Club Cats. I'm Cats, your host. In our next episode... Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria! Yeah, I'll see you then. In the meantime, you know where to find me. Visit us on the web at www.betweenthelines.xyz. And yeah, if any of this resonates with you, let me know. Or let a friend know. Who knows, maybe together we can make a difference in how the culture views and treats intuition. I gotta have more cowbell. All righty then. Ciao a tutti. Thank you.